Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Standing by to join us is Laura Shapiro. She's written on every food topic from champagne to jello for the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Slate, Gourmet, and many other publications. She's the author of three classic books of culinary history. Her awards include a James Beard Journalism Award and one from the National Women's Political Caucus. She's been a fellow at the Dorothy and Lewis B. Kalman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library, where she also co-curated the widely acclaimed exhibition, Lunch Hour NYC. Her latest book, What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tells Their Stories, is being published by Viking and on sale June 20th of this year. Her latest book, What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tells Their Stories, is an examination of a surprising array of women and how the theme that unites them is a powerful relationship with food. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Laura Shapiro. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. I really was so enamored with your book when I heard the title. I thought, wow, how did she come up with this idea? I had uh, always wondered why biographies didn't tell you what people ate. You know, there's everything else in there. If it's a woman's life story, it's uh, how she grew up, where she went to school. They, they'll analyze her poetry. They'll talk about who she married you will not find anything about uh, the food on the plate or what she did when she went into the kitchen unless she's a culinary professional. But it seems so clear to me that you don't have to be a culinary professional. You don't have to have written a cookbook to have a relationship with food and that that relationship is going to tell you something about who that person is. So uh, I got the idea to look at these lives as if, as if uh, you could you could use food as a tool of biography and burrow into someone through the food on the plate. See, that's why I love this book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I thought to my own childhood, uh, my parents were divorced, but I'd go and visit my grandma and she'd love to bake cakes. And she had that pot roast on Sundays with the popovers and, you know, it, it just all these memories of food. Yes, and those those are the memories. I feel as though then when you... When you uh, are working in your kitchen, opening the refrigerator, you're in the supermarket, any part of you that relates to food, those memories are part of it. They may not be right up front. You may not be making a pot roast, but your grandmother is in there. The way she fed you is in there, and it, it just it comes out in different ways. I, you're lucky to have a clear, powerful memory like that, that is, uh, that's a real key to who you are. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of joy on a Sunday afternoon to sit down with my um, family and have, you know, pudding, and I can, I can distinctly remember how everything tastes, so that's why I really yeah. enjoyed your book. Tell oh, me, good. oh, tell me, what do you think of this whole thing? You know, I'm on Instagram, and I'm a vegetarian, oftentimes vegan, and you see these pictures, and I'm thinking, oh, that looks delicious. But look where we have gone taking pictures of our food. It's astonishing. I, I, you know, 100 years ago, 20 years ago, nobody would have believed this was happening. What, uh, what we have had for many years is a discussion of food. We've had it in books and cookbooks. We have it on television. And then in the, starting early in the... Uh, era of the internet. We had food blogs and people talking about food uh, online, of course. 
but uh, but the fact that it seems to have culminated in this weird thing of photographing food and saying nothing else. It's like, here's the picture, and it's a beautiful picture. They're all, you know, perfect pieces of photography. So it's a beautiful picture. What does it say about me? Is it supposed to say anything, or, or is it just supposed to make an announcement? Yes. Is it supposed to just announce that I've shown up somehow? Right. I don't know. It's a very curious phenomenon. It is. I almost feel like doing the opposite of the Buddha bowls and the avocado toast and putting like a chocolate bar <laughs> or some pudding or, you know, it's because everybody, every, all the food is so exquisite, you know? Yes. And yet, if you look at the pros around the internet about food, there's never been as much food writing as we see now on the web. I mean, it's just, it's like the minute they opened the doors to the World Wide Web, people poured in to write about food and their relation to it and what they're making and what other people think and other people came in with recipes. So in a way, we also have this fabulous abundance of raw material about people's lives with food. And then this photography thing is just kind of riding along on the top mysteriously. It is. All right, so here's a question. If you were posting on Instagram, what would be on your plate? You know, I think what I would... uh, post if I were going to do that, if we're going to reflect me in some way, mm-hmm. I'd probably put my breakfast because it's exactly the same every day. And I'm very fond of it. I, you know, people are like that about their breakfasts. I, they don't vary them as much as they do other meals. Yes. Breakfast is something, you know, if you go to a foreign country, you don't necessarily want the rice porridge or whatever it is. That right. You want your, you know, you're much happier. I want my oatmeal. <laughs> yes, exactly. And your cup of coffee, if you're yeah. a coffee drinker. Anyway, I would post my breakfast, which was a piece of toast and some feta cheese and a little dish of blueberries, I, to me, that's, you know, I'm kind of a morning person. And, of course, the coffee, the coffee comes first. Oh, yes. I'm a, I'm a morning person, and to me that is like, um, hello, day, I am ready for you now. Thank I Thank you for showing up again. And if somebody in the family has eaten the last of the feta and I have to change the cheese. Well, I try to be calm. This is just a little thing. There are more important things in life, but yeah, I take notice. Exactly. It doesn't go unremarked, believe me. I'm right there with you. So <laughs> how did you choose these six women to include in what she ate? Well, the um, some of them uh, just flowed out because I was so interested in the idea once I had gotten it. Dorothy Wordsworth was the first person I chose because I saw the difference between the food in her life, cooking for her beloved brother, William the Poet, in the Lake District, this beautiful kind of intimate life with the most delicious little simple things that they made with, from their garden and so forth. That was one kind of food life that she had. 25 years later, she's living far from the Lake District, this kind of bleak village. She's taking care of her nephew, and the food is not this charmed, intimate, beautiful stuff. It is black pudding. That's uh, the emblem of the kind of food she was eating there. Right. Black pudding, uh, as you may know, it's it's like a countryside favorite in England. People have been eating it for centuries. Yes. It's pig's blood and oatmeal. It is not what Dorothy Wordsworth ever Whoa. would have eaten. At least the Dorothy I had in my imagination so I wanted to kind of reconcile that. How did it happen? How did she get from the little gooseberry tarts to this dinner of black pudding? And who was that person? And what does it tell me about her? So anyway, that was, she was a, a, somebody I definitely wanted in. 
Barbara Pym, this wonderful British novelist who wrote all the time about food. I love her books. I'd always wanted to write about her, so I swept her up very soon. There was Rosa Lewis, who uh, had a little moment of fame in this country years ago when PBS broadcast a thing called The Duchess of Duke Street, which was loosely based on her life. She was a a scullery maid who rose to great heights in Edwardian England and became this fabulous French caterer. Oh, wow. So hers is a story of class and food and how she kind of overcame class, but not quite, in her climb up the ladder. And then I, uh, I was just passing a library shelf that had a biography of Ava Brown on it, Hitler's Mistress. Yes. I thought, you know, if food can tell me something about her then food is really a valuable tool of biography. So I started into her life to see what I could pull out about the food and if there really was some kind of access to who she was. Who she was was one of the most horrible people you can imagine. Of course. But, you know, you don't have to be a wonderful person to have a food life, and she did. And I was able to get to it a bit and... uh, uh, Barbara Pym, I told you about this novelist, and then Helen Gurley Brown, the uh, editor of Cosmopolitan for many years, whose chief relationship with food was about how to resist eating it, and she made like a whole art form and political life around resisting eating food. So she had quite an amazing food story that way. You know what I found really interesting is um, your description of uh, Helen Gurley Brown uh, the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, because she was so rail-thin, but she wrote this cookbook. That was astonishing. And, you know, I at first I thought, well, okay, she got the recipes from somewhere, put out a cookbook, it was a publicity thing, it's not interesting. Well, yeah. then I looked at the cookbook. It is fascinating. It's actually a very good cookbook. It uh, ranges from very simple things to very complicated things. She covers an enormous amount of material. It's 400 pages. Oh, my gosh. And it's not bad. The recipes were all created by somebody else who was a professional recipe writer. So the recipes are are fine, you know, of their time, but they're perfectly okay. But, But she gave it this gloss of her personality, and she mixed it up a little so that she has, you know, an elaborate French entree over here and then <laughs> well open a can and a jar and cover it with ready rip and it's a great dessert <laughs> over there so it's this total clash of sensibilities right that just tells you this is not a food person no. writing this book you know this is, she had another agenda clearly exactly oh my gosh is she the one who loved jello Yes. Oh, yeah. She was, well, a certain kind of jello. It was diet jello, and she made it with of one course. quarter the amount of liquid so that what you got is this red brick of oh, rubber. Oh, c- come on. And, <laughs> yeah, and with this chemical sweetening flavor. And she loved this. She called this, she said, it's delicious. This is the treat of her life. She has it every evening and uh, twice a day on weekends sometimes with a dollop of fat-free yogurt on it. Of course. She she <laughs> raved about this. And she, you know, when you... There are some things that are just inexplicable. That's one of them. Yes, that really is. With, there must have been a lot of surprises, that being one of them, but w- you want to share any surprises along the way as you were writing this? In uh, a lot of these women, uh, they they turned around and astonished me. Eleanor Roosevelt was a great example of that. 
she presided over the food in the FDR White House, which was the worst in the history of the presidency. Everybody knew it at the time, these incredibly dreary meals. And they blamed Eleanor, and in a way it was her fault because she was in charge of the domestic side of the White House, and she just kind of didn't care that to make the food good. Is she, what was important to her was that it be low cost because it was the Depression. She thought the White House should be showing off just very simple economical meals, and that is what they were. It's just that they were so badly cooked they were inedible. So, uh, but that kind of aesthetic <laughs> approach, she just she kind of didn't deal with that. So she's so she's you know at these dinner and lunch tables all the time, watching her guests sort of toy with these awful things and get up hungry. That was her life in the White House, you outside know, the White House, when she's eating with her women friends or in her life as a public person after the death of FDR. There you see lovely food. She's enjoying it. I knew it. it. I knew it. <laughs> On I, her own. Of course. She is an eater. <laughs> yes. I was just going to say, I feel like, for women especially, that if you're not happy, you don't care what's on the table if you put anything on the table at all. And I know yeah. for me, when I'm happy, I'll eat more, I'll cook more. When I'm busy, I'm not doing so much. And that is a pure reflection of what's going on in your mental state. That's very much what what her story was. There was inside the White House and there was outside the White House. And what a distance. So that was a surprise. The the joy of discovering an Eleanor Roosevelt who really took pleasure in food. I love that. You know, we love Eleanor. I, I certainly love Eleanor. And I was thrilled to read about a first lady who was so progressive and so active and such a great voice for all the causes that I personally think are important. And uh, and then to see that, you know, she had a part of her life that also got to eat good food. I was so happy to see that. That's great. Were you able to relate to some of these food stories or different aspects of their personal lives? I certainly related to Barbara Pym, the novelist, who's... Um, she wrote these wonderful novels about uh, women leaving, leading these kind of very small British lives in the 1950s and 60s. They're, they're, you know, simple creatures. They wear cardigans and sensible shoes, and they have tea with the vicar, and they help out at the jumble sale at hmm. the church. So uh, it looks as though they have these modest, uh, they're all spinsters, at least, through most of the book, then by the end they're usually getting married. But for a while there, they're spinsters. So first you think, you know, oh, what's what's to love here? Well, they are hilarious. They're very funny. They they take no guff from anyone. They know how to skewer one of these fatheads, <laughs> males, in their lives with just a sentence. So the books are very, very funny, and they are full of food. Barbara Pym had a habit, and this is what I relate to. She had a habit of sitting there in the uh, Lions Corner House, which are the great cafeterias that they had in London in those years, she would sit there and watch what people put on their trays and watch them carry it to the table and, uh, and what they ate, and she would write it down. So if she saw, you know, a very nicely dressed lady with her hair done and a completely done up and gloves and everything else, she's pouring ketchup all over her french fries, <laughs> Barbara Pym writes that down. She's got a character, oh, and then funny. she's got a plot, and then she's got a novel. So she is writing 
writing her way into these people's lives through the food, and I relate to that so much. If I were a novelist, which I certainly am not, I'd do exactly that. I'd go to McDonald's, well, not McDonald's because it's such a limited menu. I'd mm-hmm. go someplace where there was a huge choice of food, and I would write down what everybody ate fanatically. Yes. I was, so I really related to that in Barbara Campbell. That. It is really, really revealing when you study somebody, uh, you know, their nonverbal behavior, uh, what they eat, how they eat. I remember my dad eating French fries only with a fork and a knife. Oh, and he would how never fascinating. and and he yes. would he would swear swear like a sailor but he would pick up he would use a fork and a knife to cut his chicken and cut his french fries and he would never pick anything up with his fingers he loved to be clean yeah how interesting this is all right you've got your memoir you've got everything you're ever going to need to write a book oh, right there oh boy do got i it. do i ever <laughs> let me just before we wrap up i want to ask you how did you become a writer it's a very tough road to become a writer i had always Sort of, you know, I, I was a reader, as and you'll hear this from every writer you talk to. Mm-hmm. I was a reader. I loved going to the library, and we were allowed to take out four books at a time when I was little, and I had read them all by the end of the day, and I made my mother take me back the next day. So I read everything, and then I thought, you know, the next best thing to reading a library book must be writing one. So I just had it in mind that I would become a writer. I didn't do much about it until after college when I thought, you know what, uh, if you're going to become a writer, I think actually you have to sit down and write something. I believe that is the definition. Yes. <laughs> so I got a job on a, the alternative press was just starting up in those days. Uh, and it was very easy to get a job even if you had never written a word in your life because, really? you know, it was wow. a brand new enterprise World, and, yes. and nobody was getting paid anything so it's right. really easy to get a job if there's no pay right. and and I just started writing and I was I was kind of up and running from that I mean I made all my mistakes in public and and did it I published way too soon and so forth but um but you know when you have a deadline you write you do, and you do. I did yeah so. well I know we have to wrap up and I've really enjoyed this where can people find out more about you I have a website called laurashapirowriter.com, and there's a lot in there about this book and my other books and talks I've given and all that kind of thing. And are you on Twitter or Facebook? No, I don't do any of that. I'm. Uh, it's uh, sort of not my thing. However, okay. my daughter has a nice Instagram picture of this book. <laughs> what about the pictures of your breakfast? Is that on Instagram? <laughs> right. Not yet, but you're giving me an idea. Maybe I should get her to do that. I think you should. Laura Shapiro, <laughs> I have loved chatting with you. Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you very much. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just visit moms, M-O-M-Z underscore rock. I'm also on Facebook at Janine, J-A-N-E-A-N-E, Bernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. The show blog is getthefunkoutshow.kci.org. And if you'd like to find out about being a guest, just send me an email to Janine, J-A-N-E-A-N-E, at kuci.org. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.